All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that, yet, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection, the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord as we begin our study of his word this morning. Father, again, we're thankful. We appreciate the fact that we have your word. Sometimes we take it for granted. We live in a time when we have so much. And as we've studied in this particular passage, to whom much is given, much is expected. And those who have a great deal of revelation are held to a higher standard. And this generation on this earth today has so much. We have so much that's been printed, so much published, so much available on the Internet, so much available electronically, that there is no excuse. And yet there is so much negative volition, and so so many Christians just seek the lowest common denominator. They just want the minimal approach to the Christian life, nothing that interferes with their their thinking, their life, their uh, interaction with the culture around them. And yet, as we look at Scripture again and again, we see these these commands, we see these challenges that come forth that we are to separate ourselves from the world around us. We're to present ourselves to you as a living sacrifice. We are to serve you and no other. And yet, uh, we seek just the... Uh, least that we can do. Father, challenge us as we study your word today with, with the high standard, the high calling of being a Christian, not becoming a Christian, but just living out the Christian life, seeking excellence in every area of our spiritual life that we might glorify you to the maximum. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 11. This, as we come to the conclusion in Matthew 11, this is one of those uh, great passages, three verses that many people have memorized, many of you have memorized. If not, you should memorize them. Uh, A great example of uh, the focus of, of Christianity and the distinction of Christianity from all other world religions. All world religions focus upon uh some sort of works righteousness, that that somehow man can do something to gain God's merit, earn God's approval, that somehow we do something. Now, there's a few uh, world religions that just emphasize everybody goes to nirvana or uh, some idea of heaven or something like that uh, because they have no sense of, of sin or evil or anything of that nature. But most world religions, whether you're talking about Islam, whether you're talking about modern Judaism, whether you're talking about many, many errant forms of Christianity, they emphasize works. They emphasize effort. They say there's something that we have to do uh, in order to earn God's favor. And the Bible says that's, that puts a burden on people. That, that puts a, a standard upon people that no one can achieve. And so in these verses, Jesus addresses that because this is the problem as he looks upon the masses 
of, of the Jews that have come to listen to him, he recognizes that they are all being oppressed by the Pharisees. It's almost a form of religious abuse. I almost hate to use that term because so many non-Christians today just think Christianity is religious abuse. But then they don't understand what biblical Christianity is all about in terms of grace. And this is what Jesus emphasizes, is that that in, in contrast to the Pharisees and in contrast to the religious leaders of Israel at that day, Jesus is saying that that's oppressive, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the focal point here, is that Jesus is promising rest. But there's a rest, a dimension to this verse that goes beyond simple salvation and that even goes beyond the Christian life, as we'll see when we come to the end of our study today. There are nuances here, because if you look in your Bible, not all Bibles will emphasize this, but some Bibles will, and they will put uh, this this statement that you, you will find, at the end of verse 29, you will find rest for your souls, and they will, and you probably see it in your cross-reference, we'll, we'll cross-reference that to an Old Testament passage that has significance. Jesus just isn't saying, I'm here to give you rest. There's more to it than that, as we'll see when we get here. Now, this chapter, chapter 11, is really the, the forward, the lead into uh, chapter 12. Chapter 12 is the pivot point of Matthew. I've stated this several times before. I'll go through it again next week when we start Matthew 12. Matthew 12 is the pivot point when the Jewish religious leaders officially come out and reject Jesus. But the lead into that is is Matthew chapter 11. As we see this emphasis from Matthew writing that, uh, about Israel's unbelief. And so we get a depiction here in Matthew 11 leading up to these last, these last three verses of Israel's unbelief, not just the unbelief and rejection of the leadership, but also the unbelief and rejection of the people. Not all the people, but most of the people. And so this, this theme of Israel's, uh, Unbelief and rejection is a major theme of this chapter. Now, let's just review it very very briefly. In verses 1 through 11, John the Baptist sends a couple of his disciples uh, to Jesus saying, well, what's going on here? We thought you were the king. Are you sure you're not the king? And John the Baptist is really confused. It's not that he lacks faith. It's just that he, he expected something different. He came announcing the kingdom. Jesus then preached the kingdom. And John the Baptist was ex- expecting the kingdom and the kingdom didn't come. Instead, he's in jail, and there's increasing rejection and hostility to Jesus, so he wants to know what's what's going on. He needs further enlightenment. Uh, he doesn't uh, need his faith strengthened. He just needs more information. And so we see in these first verses of, uh, of, of chapter 11 a resp- the response of John the Baptist to what's going on with Jesus, and then we'll see the response to John the Baptist that Jesus brings out. So John asks for more information, and Jesus' answer is, to look at the miracles. I'm performing the miracles that Isaiah said were the sign of the coming king. 
that that ought to be enough for you. I don't need to answer the rest of your questions. I'm not going to give you more information. Just rely on uh, what you have been given. Uh, the signs indicate that I am the king. And also at the end in verse 6, he indicates that that, uh, that he is not only the king, but that he is the who performs these miracles, but he is also has also become an offense and a stumbling uh, block to Israel, and so that is what is taking place here. And in verses eight to nineteen, <clears throat> Jesus then addresses uh, the crowd and says, "Well, what did you guys go out to see when you went out into the desert to see John the Baptist? Were you just going out to have a party and a picnic, or were you going out because there was a message that that you wanted to to hear?" And in Jesus, uh, as Jesus addresses this in verses uh, 8 through 19, he reinforces the fact that he is the king and that he came to give the kingdom, and that's what John the Baptist was, was predicting, but that the religious leaders tried to hijack the king and the kingdom. This is what he refers to in verse 12 when he says, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. There are those who want to use God for their purposes and their plans. They want to use Jesus for their political purposes and their plans. And so they are seizing the kingdom by force. And then this is further illustrated in the next little saying that he gave where he uses an illustration from children playing make-believe games. And he compares the religious leaders and some of the people uh, to children who are playing make-believe and trying to get uh, other children to do what they want them to do. But the other children, that's John the Baptist and Jesus, don't want to conform to their preconceived plan and purpose. And so this further has irritated the religious leaders because Jesus and John don't conform to their ideas, and so they're upset about that. And and it applied to people, some of the people as well. As a result of that, we came to verses 20 through 24, and Jesus announces that there will be a judgment upon the people in Galilee because they have seen this great light, they have had such great revelation, they have seen so many miracles, and they've heard the messages of Jesus, but they have rejected it. And so because they have been given such great information and revelation, they will be held to a higher standard, and there will be a greater judgment due them than even Sodom, Gomorrah, and Tyre and Sidon. And so this is a passage that leads up. It, it reinforces for us as we're reading the, the increasing rejection and hostility uh, of the people and the leadership to Jesus. And now as we come to the, to the end, we see a prayer from Jesus in verses 25 to 26, which we looked at in our previous lesson. Where Jesus said to the Father, "Thank you, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, emphasizing the Father's sovereignty, that you've hidden these things from the wise. Now, these aren't the ones who are wise according to the Scriptures, but those who think they are wise, but they've become fools because of their rejection of, of the Lord, that they have, they, and that he says that you have hidden these things from the wise. Now, the wise were given a certain amount of revelation. They were giving, given uh, uh, revelation through creation, general revelation, and they rejected that. They were given initial revelation through the 
the message of John the Baptist and Jesus. They rejected that. And as a result of their rejection of the little bit of revelation they were given, Jesus is saying that the Father's not giving them any more revelation. And we'll really see this when we get through chapter 12 and into chapter 13, where Jesus starts veiling his message purposefully by teaching in parables rather than by teaching plain. We haven't seen a parable yet. The parables come because Jesus is sort of hiding what he is saying from the religious leaders. We don't want, you, you can't understand it anyway, but we're going to make it more uh, difficult for you to understand. But instead, Jesus says God revealed them to the babes. That is, those who were like children, those who were humble and humbled themselves under God and responded to that re- revelation. In verse 27, Jesus makes one of the most profound statements in the New Testament about his deity. He says, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. He's claiming this tremendous authority that's been given to him by the Father that is equal to that of God the Father. And he says, no one knows the Son except the Father. He's claiming equivalent knowledge, eternal, infinite omniscience that's identical to the Father. No one has... Uh, no one knows the Son except the Father, no, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now, some people might stop there and say, well, see, that's showing that Jesus is deciding who he will reveal himself to and who he won't. But immediately in the next verse, what does Jesus say to this crowd? He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy, heavy laden. He's not being restrictive. He wills that all will come to him. So he claims here this, this, this equivalence in knowledge to the Father and that it is only through him that people get to know the Father because he knows the Father exhaustively. People can come to him and he will reveal the Father to him. This is the same kind of thing that John uh, John writes in, in the Gospel of John in John 1.18, no one has seen God... Uh, at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. That word for declare means he, it's where we get our word exegesis. He has exegeted. He has explained the Father. How do we know the Father who we, is invisible and we haven't seen? By looking at the Son. That's how we come to know uh, who, who the Father is. So then Jesus says, I'm the only one who reveals the Father and I reveal the Father to whom I will, and then he addresses the entire multitude, showing that this is not a restrictive invitation, and he says to them, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is a profound statement because he is saying that he and he alone can provide that real rest that is spoken of in the Old Testament that is a picture of eternal rest in God. This is, as we'll see, an offer of salvation. Then in verse 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Second time that we hear this reference to rest. And then he says, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now what we see here is a twofold uh, invitation. Verse 28 is an invitation to those who need salvation and who need to turn to the Savior for rest. They are under a burdensome system in Judaism. 
In Judaism, they are trying to earn righteousness, tzedakah. This is a word that is not unfamiliar to most Jews, especially those who go to synagogue. They are, they are do, their good deeds and their works of charity, uh, being involved in the community is all described by this word tzedakah. But Isaiah 64 6 says that all our works of righteousness, tzedakah, are as filthy rags. It is very clear from the writings of the prophets that even the best that we can do, even our charitable works have no value as far as God is concerned. Uh, scripture says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Now, in modern Judaism, there's a rejection of what we refer to as the doctrine of the uh, total depravity of man, that is that, and, and the doctrine of Adam's original sin, that in Adam's fall we sinned all, that when Adam sinned, that that plunged the entire human race into corruption and under the penalty of spiritual death. They don't have a doctrine of, of, of total depravity, uh, although they do believe that man is sinful, but they don't connect the dots in terms of the doctrine of, of uh, of, of total depravity. But Scripture says that we're all fallen, that man, therefore, is basically corrupt, not basically good, and that nothing good can come from a corrupt root. There has to be a transformation, and that transformation comes only by uh, someone paying the sin penalty and then trusting in the gift of God. And so... The Old Testament emphasized that. Now, verse 30 is, is a little bit different. It goes beyond simply the offer of salvation and talks about submission to authority. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Notice the connection there. Taking a yoke is related to learning. Now, that's why I say this is, this passage isn't talking about the gospel because the gospel is predicated upon one simple uh, truth. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Faith alone. You don't have to learn anything but, but the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you believe that. That is coming to Jesus as we'll see in just a minute. And in verse 29, this goes beyond that. What do you do after you're saved? You take that yoke upon you and learn from me, Jesus said, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. See, he's specifically contrasting himself to the arrogance and the religiosity of the Pharisees who think that by their own efforts they can impress God and they can accumulate enough brownie points to actually get into heaven. Now, whenever I say that now, I go back to a few years ago. Many of you were here on a on one one night when I had, and I'm not poking fun at him. I'm just using this as an illustration to show the contrast between the biblical view and uh, different views in modern modern Judaism. We had a young rabbi here who was uh, on staff at one of the large synagogues here in town, and it was in August, and it was at the beginning of the High Holy Days, and I asked him to come out and just to talk to the congregation about what uh, what the High Holy Days were all about, what uh, Yom Kippur was all about, and what Rosh Hashanah was all about. And as he talked about the High Holy Days, he talked about the different things, and he actually said it this way, he talked about the different things that 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 
that can accumulate righteousness. And he said, and this makes brownie points with God. See, everybody just kind of went, what? He said that? You know, I can say it for 30 years and everybody just said, okay, well, whatever. But he came and actually said it and they were just shocked. They really believe that. Yes, they really believe that. And they're not the only ones. You look at Jehovah's Witnesses, you look at uh, Islam, you look at at Christian science, you look at uh, any number of uh, even uh, Protestant denominations. They think that not only must you believe in Jesus, you must do something. You must show evidence through good works that you're really saved. So it's a faith plus something. And this is the burden that was upon uh, uh, the Israelites. And so Jesus contrasts himself. He says he's gentle and lowly of heart, which reminds us of Philippians 2.8, which talks about the fact that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the cross. This is what what we're talking about in this, this passage, to take my yoke upon you, has to do with obedience to the word. It has to do with responding to the authority of the Lord in our life and growing and maturing. So, so it's not just salvation here. Salvation is the focus of verse 28, but spiritual growth and discipleship is the focus of verses 29 to 30. So Jesus says in verse 28, come to me. Come to me. It's an interesting uh, phraseology that we have here. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. So what's the solution to being burdened with the demands of religion? See, Christianity isn't a religion. Religion says, I do something to gain God's favor. Christianity is a relationship based upon faith alone and Christ alone. And, And that's what this is talking about, just come to me. Now, there are different times when Jesus uses this phrase, and you have to look at the context to understand what he's talking about when he says, come to me. Because he uses this same phrase when he talks to his disciples who are already believers and wants them to follow him. But in this context, he is talking to a crowd that is made up of some who are already believers, some who are not believers, and he's using it in the same way that he uh, talks about it in John chapter 6, verse 35. John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, this is a fascinating Parallel, because when you look at the synonymous parallelism between these two lines, we see that coming to me is parallel to believing in me. So this is what I spoke of earlier in the uh, when we were observing the Lord's table, is that the Bible uses these other idioms to help us understand what belief is. That belief is is trusting in God, and it's receiving Him. It's accepting something is true. As many as received Him, to them gave He the power to be called the sons of God, even to those who what believe on His name. See, receiving Him is the same as believing on Him. Then we have uh, the passages I referred to earlier, eating my flesh, drinking my blood. This is pictures of accepting or receiving or taking Jesus into our life. And here we see coming to Jesus is parallel to believing in him. And this is further expanded a little bit in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, 
and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So anyone can come to Jesus, and coming to him is equivalent to believing in him. So when Jesus says, come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, he is addressing the unbeliever. He is saying that you can't get to heaven, you can't get God's approval by simply doing the law. The law is oppressive. The law is a burden. Uh, you can't, uh, if, if you're inherently corrupt, you can't do anything to fix that. You can't do anything to repair that. You can't do anything to heal that. All you can do is turn to someone who can uh, help that, fix that, heal that. And that is Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our sins. So he says, come to me. All ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest so you don't have to worry about maintaining or gaining salvation. A lot of people are out there trying to gain salvation, but they also think they maintain salvation by their works. Uh, that's usually classified as Arminian theology, that I may trust in Jesus and I'm saved, but then if I sin, if I commit certain sins, if I continue to live in sin, then I'll lose my salvation. The flip side of that from a perversion in Calvinism, the, the P of, of, of uh, Tulip, a perseverance of the saints, is that those who truly believe, and see that nowhere in the Bible does it has an, have an adverb on believe, those who truly believe will persevere in good works. And so you can look at a person's life and over a period of time, if they don't have the kind of good works you think they have, then you say, well, I'm not sure that person's a Christian. Well, how can we, how can we judge? It's not based on, on works. It's based on trust in Christ. Now, I can look at somebody and they don't have too much going on for them spiritually, and I can say, well, they certainly don't live like a Christian. They're certainly not going anywhere in their Christian life. And there are a lot of Americans who are that way. We live in such a licentious society today that has been uh, governed by licentiousness and governed by by antinomianism that that a lot of Christians just don't understand the dynamics of the spiritual life and that we are to pursue spiritual maturity, and that is through obedience under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, walking by uh, by the Spirit. But... The gospel doesn't say believe and then obey in terms of to maintain your salvation. You rest. You relax. Jesus paid it all. Jesus did it all. He, he paid the penalty for sin so that sin is no longer the issue. That doesn't mean you can go sin like the devil. It means that you don't have to be concerned about it causing a loss of salvation. You can relax and and you can rest. Salvation is based upon faith and faith alone. What is faith? Faith is simply trusting that something is true. We can get wrapped around the axle a little bit in understanding the term in, in, in terms of philosophy, but faith basically means that something is true. That means that it is an intellectual activity. It's not an emotional activity. You will often hear people say, well, you know, that person claims to be a Christian, but I think it's a head faith and not a heart faith. I have no clue what that means. The Bible doesn't use that kind of terminology. Often the way we use that 
idiomatically is the heart is emotion and the head is intellect and somehow you have to have a a heart faith which is an emotional faith but emotion doesn't believe believe is a cognitive process it's an intellectual process that means what 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 faith does is it comes to first understand something and then once it understands it it says yes i agree that is true faith is intellectual it is not emotional it is not just just having a, a, an experience Faith is also always directed towards an object. Our, the object of our faith is Jesus. We believe Jesus died on the cross of our sins. And, and faith means that you can state the object of your faith in a proposition. Now we're getting over into philosophy a little bit. In philosophy, a proposition is like what you learned a declarative sentence was back in the 6th or 7th grade. It states something as a fact. A proposition is something that can be verifiable or falsifiable. Um, it's going to rain this afternoon. Or, or let me use a different example. Um, is it going to rain this afternoon? Is that falsifiable or verifiable? Is it going to rain this afternoon? No, it's a question. You can't prove it's true or false. I can say, read your Bible today. Is that verifiable or falsifiable? Neither one. It's an imperative. It's a command. You can't verify it or falsify it. But if I say, uh, if I say I went to the store this morning, you can prove that to be true or prove that to be false. That's a proposition. So faith always wraps its arms around something that can be true, proved to be true or false. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's true or false. If you believe it, you are saying it is a true statement. I agree that that is true. That is what faith is. That is assenting to the truth. That's what the language means. It doesn't mean, uh, some people think, well, assent just means head faith. Well, excuse me, but if you believe with your mind, where's your mind located? It's not located here. It's located up here between my ears. Head faith is the only kind of faith that a person can have. You believe with your mind. You understand something, to be whether it's true or false, and then you agree or assent to it as being true. Now you have to understand what it is that you're agreeing to. Some people say, yeah, I, I, I agree that the, that the Bible says Jesus died for my sins. Is that going to save them? Nope. I can say I believe that 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 uh, Charles Darwin says that man evolved from from monkeys. That doesn't mean I believe it. It just means I believe that's what that book says. There are a lot of people who are that way. They have this. Yeah, I believe that Christianity says this. I believe that's what my Sunday school taught me, but the teacher taught me. But they've never stated it this way. I believe Jesus died for my sins. That's where it's personal where you have stated the salvific proposition as it applies to you as, as an individual. And that's what faith is. Faith means that we are trusting in Christ and him alone for our salvation. We believe what the Bible says, that Jesus died for my sins. And by trusting in him, believing him, that's a question he asked Martha after he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Uh, he who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha 
Do you believe this? See, that's the issue. It's faith, faith alone. Well, Jesus then goes on to the next step, and he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That just means he is humble. He is obedient to the Lord. He's contrasting himself to the, uh, to the Pharisees. And he says, My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Now, what's a yoke? I have a picture of it up on the screen so you can see it. It's a wooden frame that was placed on the back of oxen to connect two together so that they could pull in tandem. Uh, a simple yoke consisted of a bar with two loops. Sometimes it was rope. Sometimes it was wood uh, that went around the animal's necks. And so they could pull together. Now, Dwight Pentecost, who just went to be with the Lord last year, I think he was around 98 years old, taught at Dallas Seminary for 60 years and was one of the great professors who taught there, has a tremendous little book called Design for Discipleship, which I read uh, probably about 40 years or, or so ago. And in one chapter, he talks about these verses in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 29, and he writes in there, and I thought I would just read this to you because this is a great, a great little story. He says, Back in my college days, I observed an incident that made this scripture very clear to me. On Sunday afternoons, I used to go out to a little rural Sunday school to teach. One afternoon, the superintendent of the Sunday school, a farmer, and I were visiting in the community. There was an old farmer plowing with a team of oxen. And as I saw this team, I was somewhat amazed, for one of the animals was this huge ox, and the other one was just this small, young bullock. That ox towered over the little bullock that was sharing the work with him. I was amazed and perplexed to see a farmer trying to plow with two such unequal animals in the yoke. I commented on the inequality to the man with whom I was riding. He stopped the car and said, I want you to notice something. See the way those traces are hooked to the yoke? You will observe that the large ox is pulling all the weight. That little bullock is being broken into the yoke, but he is not actually pulling any weight. Pentecost says, My mind instinctively came to this passage of Scripture where our Lord said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest in your souls. In the normal yoke, the load is equally distributed between the two that are yoked together. But when we are yoked with Jesus Christ, he bears the load. And we who are yoked with him share in the joy and the accomplishment of the labor, but without the burden of the yoke. The tragedy is that some of us have never been broken in to the yoke. Now, when we, when we look at this, there's more to the statement of the yoke than simply its, its literal use. It was often used and was typically used to describe the, uh, the responsibilities that a rabbi would put upon his disciples. And so it expresses the relationship of the rabbi or of the Pharisee to the, to his disciples and that a disciple would take the yoke. And so this is often compared uh, then to, uh, to the Mosaic Law. We look at Acts chapter 15 where we have the great episode related to the Jerusalem Council and the decision there is to what's the relationship of these new Gentile converts to the law. 
What's their relationship to the law? And uh, Peter stands up at the end, and he goes back and he reviews what God did through him in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles at Cornelius. And he says to his audience, he says, and there are those who are Judaizers there who wanted to mandate the law for all Gentiles. And Peter says, now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? See, that's that idea. The, the law had been so transformed by the Pharisees with all these additional traditions and commandments that were added to it that it was impossible, it was burdensome to follow the law and all of those regulations. And then in verse 11, Peter said, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. That is Cornelius. We're, we're, we're saved by grace alone uh, through faith in Jesus Jesus Christ. Now, this idea of taking the, the yoke of Jesus reminds us that there is a command for all of us in relation to being a disciple. We're not just supposed to stop with minimalist uh, requirements of getting saved. Uh, we're not just going to be uh, born and just sit around in dirty diapers, for spiritual diapers for the rest of our life. We have to grow up and we have to mature, and that's what discipleship is talking about. It's submission to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and following his mandates and his instruction on living the Christian life, which is not burdensome. It's still based on grace, just as salvation was based on grace. But it's recognizing his authority. It's the same thing that Jesus referred to back in Matthew 10.38 when he said, He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Remember, I talked about this, that under the Roman Empire, if your extreme criminals and traitors violated the law of Rome, then they would be condemned to death. And in condemning them to death, they would be crucified, and only non-Romans were crucified. Roman citizens couldn't be crucified. And what they had to do was carry the, the cross piece of the cross to the place of execution. And that was a sign that they were submitting to the authority of Rome. So this idiom, to take up your cross, uh, means to submit to the authority of God just as Jesus submitted to the authority of God. Now, there's one last thing I want to point out, wrap it up. I mentioned this at the beginning. The reference here where Jesus says, you will find rest for your souls. He's making a profound claim here and a warning. What's going to happen in chapter 12? He's rejected by the nation, by the national leaders and by the people. And what's that going to bring? Hint of coming attractions. It's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which isn't personal, it's generational, and it had to do with that generation's rejection of the Messiah, and that punishment for that rejection would end up being the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Well, Jesus is foreshadowing this here by his reference to this verse. He's quoting from Jeremiah 6.16. I'd like to take time to look at it. You can look it up later, but Jeremiah 6.16 is a warning to Israel, to Jerusalem, that judgment day is coming, that, that, that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and God is going to destroy Jerusalem because they have rejected him. And in Jeremiah 6.16, Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is. See, 
he's old school. I hate that term. People use that all the time, old school. The way it's used today is old school is automatically bad. The Bible says the old ways are the good ways, and the old ways are the biblical ways. The new ways are not biblical ways. Old school is what we want to be. We don't want to be be new school because most of new school is built on postmodernism. That says the Lord, stand in the ways and see, ask for the old paths. That's the way of the law, uh, the, the Mosaic law, which they were under in the age of Israel, where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. Rest comes by walking in obedience to the Lord. But what did they say? We won't walk in it. So when Jesus quotes from Jeremiah 6.16 in Matthew 11.29, there's, there's a subtext there. And the subtext is this rest was offered in the Old Testament. It was rejected, and what happened? What happened was the destruction of Jerusalem and the first temple. You're about to reject me again. If you don't come to me, you won't have rest. And if there's no rest, there's going to be another destruction of this second temple because you've rejected the king and the kingdom. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to simply respond in faith. Come unto me, Jesus said. When we come to him, we have life eternal. And then when we take his yoke upon us and we accept that easy yoke and submit to his leadership and authority in our lives, then we can experience that rest on a day-to-day basis with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to, try, to uh, study these things today, to be reminded that salvation is by simply trusting in Christ, trusting alone, not faith plus works, not faith plus any ritual or uh, any other observance. It's simply uh, recognizing the absolute truth that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and trusting in Jesus alone, not Jesus plus works, Jesus plus secondary works, Jesus plus continued obedience. It's just trusting in Christ alone, just that one-shot decision, and we have eternal life. But that life needs to be developed. It needs, just like in Our natural life, we need to grow and mature. We need to learn discipline. We need to learn how to live well. That is true for the spiritual life. And we do that based on grace because we have a Savior who taught us to follow him in humility. Just as he is humble and humbled himself by obedience, so we do the same thing. And that burden is light because he is the one that strengthens us As Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not based in our effort. It's based upon our walk by the Holy Spirit. And he is the one who carries the burdens for us and lifts. He's the one who does all the heavy lifting. Now, Father, we pray if there's anyone here that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain by trusting in Jesus as their Savior. The instant you think, yes, that's true, I believe that, then at that instant you're saved eternally, and that can never be lost. And now the next issue is, what am I going to do about it? And am I just going to relax in being saved, or am I going to fulfill the mission that the Lord has given me, that I am saved to do good works, that is to grow and mature spiritually, that I may serve the Lord and serve others. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.